Great to see you this morning. Today we're talking about how to enjoy the rest of your life. And what we're doing is we're studying through the book of Philippians together. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, the church that he started in the city of Philippi. And as he's writing this, the theme throughout the book is about how to enjoy life. And that's relevant to us. And you see topic after topic in this letter that he wrote that totally relates to how to enjoy life or why I'm not enjoying life. Like, wow, if I would just follow this, I'd be okay. You know, why am I not doing some of these things? And he gives you practical help. That's what I like about Paul. There's practical things that you do. Today, we want to look at how to reduce conflict with others. Because if I'm going to enjoy my life, life's not fun if I'm having conflict at home or conflict at work. You know, that, it's not very much fun. I don't enjoy that. One of the major causes of unhappiness is that strain that you feel in a relationship. It, it's a killjoy. It just, it just zaps you. It affects you emotionally. It affects you mentally. It gets you down. Unity is a key ingredient for success in every area of our life. If you're running a business, you want your employees to work in unity together. You help each other out. You know, talking about sports, we want the Dodgers to work in unity together. If the Dodgers have strife with each other, they're not going to do as well. Unity is what makes that team, you know, progress and do well. We want our government, we want the president, and we want the Congress to work together. That's the only way they get anything accomplished, or that's the only way they get a lot of things accomplished. We want, in a family, uh, we want the family members to work together. We don't want that conflict and that stress going on. In a church, we want to work together as a team in unity, and then we can do more. We can be more effective. You know, we can be on the same team. I've said several times, a church is like a raft, and everybody is putting that raft, and everybody's giving an oar, and everybody's paddling. But most churches are not all paddling in the same direction. Because a lot of times the people don't know what direction we're going. So this guy's paddling over there and this guy's paddling over there. And they're wondering why, why the church isn't getting anywhere. But when a church is working in unity and together, here's where we're headed. And we're all going the same way. That church can accomplish something. A church is no different than any other group of people, a business, a family. When you work together, that's when success comes. That's when you can have a powerful impact on others and that's when you can accomplish the goals that you want to have. But very little is accomplished when I'm just doing my own thing. I don't think of any one person that's going to accomplish very much in their life by themselves. We need other people. We need other people to build us up to get us to that point. Then we need other people when we're accomplishing the goal. No one can do it on their own. No one's going to be very successful by themselves. There is no one-man show it just doesn't work out that way. But when we're in unity, there's a tremendous power and potential to what a group of people can do. Lenin once spoke and said, he, he only had about a dozen men there at the time. He said, give me a hundred men that are committed and we'll change the world. Well, apparently he got a hundred men because within 40 years, they had two-thirds of the world was communist. So apparently... He got 100 men. 
It's amazing what a man can do for a bad cause if he's got a group of committed people. What would happen if we had a hundred, give me a hundred people that would be willing to go together? If he can reach two-thirds of the world for a bad cause, for a cause that ended up failing. We know our cause has been going on for 2,000 years and it's never failed. We're still here today. Things are still happening. What would happen if 100 people here said, give me 100 men and we're going to reach this area for Christ? We could do it. We could do it. If someone can get two-thirds of the world communist, can't we get this area turned on Jesus? Yes, we can. It doesn't take a lot of people, but it takes committed people. That's what matters. If people are committed to the cause, powerful things can take place. In 2 Philippians 2, Paul talks about how to have unity. Here's what he says in verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So he talks about four things here about what unity can look like. Unity can look like being like-minded. We're thinking the same way. Like-minded doesn't mean, you know, sometimes we think like-minded means carbon copy in our minds. It doesn't mean that. That's called brainwashing. But like-minded means we're thinking the same direction. We're going the same way. It doesn't mean that we're conforming to how how we think on every detail. But we have a like purpose, you know. we're, We're thinking in the same type of way. Like, we're like-minded. We all believe that we're going to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. But does that mean you're going to do it the same exact way I do it? No. You're going to do it different because everybody's wired differently. But we're like-minded. We believe in our mind the exact same thing. Let's love people. Let's love God. But it expresses itself in different ways. So being like-minded doesn't mean conformity. Conformity can be a bad thing. Having the same love, similar thing. Being one in spirit, being one in purpose. The purpose idea is we all have the same purpose. There's actually five purposes when you think of a church. Why does the church exist? Well, one of the reasons we exist is we do exist to draw people closer to God. That means if the person doesn't know the Lord, maybe through our interaction with them, now they do. But it doesn't stop there. The person that knows the Lord wants to grow. You know, but it's a continued growth, but it's an outreach toward other people. That's one of the reasons why the church exists. If a church is doing no outreach toward other people, it's not really being the church. But that's not all that the church is. The church is also fellowship. It's us being together, encouraging one another, loving one another, building each other up. But it's not just that. It's also ministry, us meeting the needs of people even outside of the church. Fellowship is about us, but we also minister to needs of people. It's about serving, using my gifts and talents to serve God and others in a variety of ways. You know, the the ways are unlimited, but the purpose is, God, how have you wired me to serve and make a difference? And then spiritual growth. We exist for spiritual growth. A church is about helping people grow spiritually. I'm learning more. My heart is changing My character is changing. It's about life change. And church is about worship, what we do, like gathering together in worship. A lot of times when you think about church, 
That's what people think about. What is church? It's a place that we go to. We gather together. We have a worship experience. We experience God together. That's good, but that's only one-fifth of it. If my church experience only exists on what happens right now, then I'm only getting 20% of what church is about. But if I'm also getting relationships with people, if I'm also using my gifts and talents to make life better for others, if I'm also a part of helping to draw people to the Lord, if I'm growing spiritually and being involved in that, that's when you get all of what God wants to do through the church. It's more than just what we do on Sunday morning. Now, what I like about Paul is he gives five practical steps on how to have this type of unity that we talked about. You know, being one in purpose, one in mind, these type of things, having the same love. He tells us how to do it. So in your notes, number one is diffuse competition. What this is talking about, what, what I mean by this is don't compete within the team. If I have a team that's fighting each other and competing against each other, that's not much of a team. You know, that's conflict, and those conflicting desires hurt the team. So we don't compete with each other. We're on the same team. We are competing, though. We're, we're competing against anything that would be unholy, anything that would be evil, anything that would be bad, anything that would be unloving. If we know that it's about loving God and loving our neighbor, we're competing against anything that would be unloving toward God, unloving toward our neighbor. I always find it weird and so unbiblical if a church thinks they're in competition with other churches. Isn't that the weirdest thing? How could we be in competition with other churches when we're on the same team? Now, we might be in competition with the beach. You know what I mean? Uh, We might be in competition with Sunday morning soccer leagues for kids. But why would we be in competition with another church? We're on the same side. We're all working together to draw people to God. We're on their side. We're cheering them on. It just doesn't make sense. But, it, but people sometimes think that they're in competition with other churches. In Philippians 2.3, it says, do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition. In the um, Phillips translation, it words it like this. Never act from motives of rivalry. In the Jerusalem Bible, it states it like this. There must be no competition among you. The reason I show different versions of the Bible is these things are written in a different language. And you have these professors, and they get together, and they translate it to English. And anybody that can speak another language, I speak some Portuguese. And based on what they say, if you ask me to translate it to you, I could translate it to you, and three months later, you could ask me to translate the same thing, and I might say it differently. Because in the translation, I know the meaning I'm trying to get across. You know what I mean? And sometimes there's a lot of ways to say that. There's some things I could say that would be inaccurate. But what I'm trying to say is there's sometimes a lot of ways to translate something from one language to another. I can try to translate it word by word by word, And sometimes it won't make sense. What did they say? They said, see the car red? I wouldn't translate it word for word. See the car red? Because that sounds weird, right? But I translate the meaning. What they're saying is, see the red car. But, you know, 
you can translate it word for word, and it's going to be weird. But you can know what it means and translate it into the other language and even use different words because so that we understand it in our language. That's why when you see all these different versions of the Bible, they're saying the same thing, but the translators are looking at it and say, how can we communicate what he said in our language? And when it comes from Hebrew to our language, the way Hebrew is written, it's quite different than the way we would talk. Greek is closer, but Greek is quite different than the way we would talk. So it's sometimes good when you're reading the Bible, when you get to read it in different translations, you say, okay, now I fully get what he's saying. Selfish ambition, competition among one another, motives of rivalry. It's interesting how the group of people are trying to translate what it means, and they're saying the same thing in three different ways. But when you hear it in three different ways, you really get it now. You know, okay, now I really understand. Diffuse means to reduce the tension, the strain, the anger. You know, never act out of these motives of rivalry. Because I think of sibling rivalry when I see that one, how children are competing against each other. And they sometimes grow up, and they're, they're still trying to outdo their brothers and sisters. They're still in competition with their own family. And I don't think that's healthy. I don't want to be in competition with my brothers or my sister. I want to, if I'm comp- in competition with them, I get envious when they have success because it's my brother and he's doing better than me. Isn't that crazy? Shouldn't I be just so thrilled for him and high-fiving him and calling him on the phone and saying, hey, that is so awesome. I know some people that can't do that with their own brother and sister. That's wrong. That's not healthy. That is not normal. It's maybe normal in a realm of people that don't love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbors as self. Maybe it's normal there. But that's not a normal part of a person living for God. We would, we would just be so thrilled to see what's happening with our family. In James 4, 1 and 2, what causes fights and quarrels? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. So here's the first cause of conflict, competing desires. You have a desire, and it's competing against someone else's desire. So you have conflict at work. Because you guys have, you both have a desire, but it's competing against each other. It's not working together for each other's good. See, our society teaches us instant gratification. When my needs conflict With your needs, it causes a problem because we're fighting for that instant gratification instead of fighting for unity. A second thing that Paul points out, if you don't want to have conflict, delete conceit. Delete conceit. Get rid of pride. Don't do things just to show off. Don't do things all for the praise and glory of other people. See, if I can do this, then... People are going to think I'm great. Here's how it's been translated. Do nothing out of vain conceit. Never act from motives of personal vanity. So vain conceit, personal vanity. Don't do anything from a cheap desire to boast. That's how the Good News Version put it. A cheap desire to boast. And that's a cheap desire when we want to boast. 
You know, it's saying an egotist, all he really sees is himself. And that's destructive in relationships. That's going to be destructive at work. That's going to be destructive at home uh, with your spouse, with your family. In Proverbs 13.10, it says, pride only breeds quarrels. When you're prideful, when you're arrogant, it's only going to cause fights. It's not going to bring about anything good in your relationships. So here's the second cause of conflict, personal pride. Personal pride, ego. You know, ego is when I, want, when I refuse to admit that I'm wrong. You know, that's going to cause separation between me and my friends. If I could eliminate ego out of my life, I would have very few problems. The problem is it's hard to eliminate ego out of your life. It's very difficult. I want to, and I try to, but I don't always succeed at it. But if I can just kill the ego, kill the pride, my relationships with my wife, with my kids, with other people at work, it's going to get better. There's no way for it not to. The third thing that Paul points out is decrease criticism. Decrease criticism. Here's how he says it. In humility, consider other people better than yourselves. In humility, consider other people better than yourselves. Wow. That goes against culture. Now, a good translation of this would be um, that word better means worthy of respect. It's best translated as better because we would miss the meaning of what it's trying to say. But if you looked at the word in the, in the Greek, it's saying uh, more worthy of respect than yourself. You know, instead of better, more worthy of respect than yourself. Treat other people as if they're more worthy of respect than I am. That gives you closer to what it means rather than just saying better than me. That person's more worthy of respect than me. How can you do that? You have to be humble. And that's a radical concept. Treating other people better than me? Because selfishness and treating ourselves better than others has become a character trait in our culture. That's a character trait, to think I'm better than you. Isn't that a horrible character trait? And that causes division. That causes strife among people. Here's what humility is. In your notes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather not thinking of yourself at all. You're not even focusing on yourself. What I see, when people are humble, they don't know that they're humble. They don't know that they're humble. They don't. They're just humble because that's what they do. They just, they just treat people better than themselves. And they're not even thinking about it. It's not like they're saying, hey, I'm going to try to be humble. I think what happens is the closer you get to God, the more your heart changes, and the more that just becomes natural. I'm just getting more natural at treating people better than myself. And then before you know it, you're living a humble lifestyle and not even knowing that you're being humble. You know, that, that you're not being prideful. When I'm saying humble lifestyle, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, that term can mean like financially humble or whatever. I'm talking about character, that you're not prideful. You just love people. You just do it. What? Wow, you're humble and you're thinking like, what? 
I just love people. What are they talking about? Because it's not on your mind that way. You just, you just love them. That's the type of heart that we want to develop. In James 4, 11 and 12, it says, Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. The law is the law of God. You know, in the Bible, the Ten Commandments and some of the laws, he's saying when you become judgmental, which is pridefulness, right? Because the only way I can be judgment, judgmental toward others is for me to think that I'm better than them. See, if I'm humble, I'll say, well, I'm not perfect either. Both people can tell right from wrong, okay? You can be humble, and you can totally tell right from wrong. You can be prideful, and you can totally tell right from wrong. The difference is, if I'm prideful, I can tell right from wrong, and I'm judgmental in my attitude toward you. Like, how can they do such a thing? If I'm humble, I can tell right from wrong. I totally see what they're doing is wrong. But in my mind, I think, you know, I mess up too. I've got my issues. Who am I to judge them? I know what they're doing is wrong because the Bible says so. I know that I'm wrong. But I'm not going to have a judgmental attitude toward them because I'll be, I'll be judging them. And sure enough, you know, the very next day or an hour later, I'll be messing up in my own way that I sin. You know, like getting angry too easily or whatever my issues are. And it won't be the same thing that they do. That's why we're judgmental. Because we accuse and we excuse. I'll accuse you for what you do that's wrong, but I'll excuse myself because, gee, I'm only human. Come on. We accuse and excuse, and that makes us judgmental. Humility makes us not that way. It continues the verse. There is only one lawgiver and judge. Who are you to judge your neighbor? It's saying there's only one lawgiver and judge, and that's God. Who are you to judge? If God wants to judge them, that's between them and God. But I have no business judging them because, first of all, I don't know their motives. And even more than that, I sin. I still mess up. It is never ju judgmental to say these things are wrong to do. That's not being judgmental. That's just stating facts. This is a sin. This is a sin. This is a sin. That's not judgmental. It's only stating facts. What's judgmental is if I'm judgmental toward you because you do these sins. That's the sin. Because how can I be judgmental toward you if you do these sins when I sin too? I sure hope God isn't as judgmental toward me as I was toward you. So you want to know right and wrong. More, more for yourself, not so that you can like, pick other people apart. Uh, having a judgmental attitude is not loving. It's not caring. Having a forgiving heart, that's what love is. But you do need to know right from wrong for your own sake. Because if you start doing these things, it's going to mess up your life. And if you're a parent, you want to know right from wrong because you want to help guide your kids away from things that are going to destroy them. Don't be afraid to say abortion is wrong if the culture says it's okay. Don't be afraid to say homosexuality is a sin if the culture says it's okay. The Bible says these things. But don't ever be judgmental toward anyone that's had an abortion. 
Don't ever be judgmental toward anyone who's homosexual. Don't be judgmental. What I'm saying is the Bible says don't do this. There's reasons why the Bible says that. But it's not in there to, so that we can be judgmental. It's so that I can learn like, okay, this is an unhealthy thing to do for my life. So I'm, it's, it's for my good. It's not for the purpose of me just pointing my finger at everybody else. Because I'm going to tell you, if we go through a list of sins, I'm going to be pointing my finger at myself a lot. A lot. When society says, don't speak about right and wrong. No, it doesn't say it. that's. You can say this is unhealthy for you. This is wrong. Unhealthy, wrong. To me, it's the same thing. This is unhealthy. This is a healthy lifestyle. To me, saying healthy, unhealthy is the same as saying sin or not sin. But there's nothing wrong with stating right and wrong. But if you're judgmental, that's when it's bad. You never want to be judgmental. The third cause of conflict is failure to value others. Don't treat them with less respect. Everyone deserves respect. In fact, treat them better than you would treat yourself, as the scripture said. The fourth one is demonstrate consideration. Demonstrate consideration. Paul said if you want to reduce conflict in your relationships, he's saying be considerate. In Philippians 2, 4, it says, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So you're not just consumed with the things you need to do, with your own affairs. Circle the word look. That's a Greek word, skopos. What that means is it's where we get the word scope from. You know, like a telescope, you know, you, you, you're looking at things more closely. You're paying closer attention when you use a scope of any sort. So that's what it means. Pay attention to the needs of other people. Uh, each of us should look or scopos not only at my own interest, but the interest of others. A lot of times we have conflict with others because we know our interest and we care about the things that are important to us, but we don't know the interest of those around us and we don't care about their interest. I'd ask you, do you know your spouse's greatest interest? Like, could you get them in order? Like, number one, this is what she likes, her greatest interest. Number two, number three, number four, number five. And if you can't do it, then it means, wow, maybe I've been looking too much at myself and my interest because I can't write down what their interests are. How about your kids? Could you look at each kid and write down their top five interests? If not, maybe it's because I'm looking too much at the things I'm interested in that I don't know what they're interested in. And that lets you know, maybe I'm selfish. Maybe I'm consumed with my interest and I'm not aware. I'm not, like the word scope, I'm not putting a closer attention on those around me and maybe that's why the conflict is happening. Because I'm shooting after an interest that I have that's not wrong but in the process, I'm not sensitive to the interests that they have. You see this in practical ways. Like, who gets control of the remote? <laughs> if you're the one that always has to have control of the remote, then it's pretty clear who the selfish one is in the house. You know? Who's the selfish one? They get control of the remote. No, that's my, I get that. 
So there's, there's ways that you see that, and they're funny, and they're small, but it reveals character. It reveals, like, you know, character. Like, uh, why don't the kids ever get a ch- uh, choice? Why don't, you know, obviously, as a parent, you have to monitor their choices. That's your responsibility. You know, a kid uh, can watch what they want to watch if it's something that you know is it's not unhealthy to them. But why don't the kids get to choose? Why can't the wife have the remote? You know, why can't it be her turn to pick what she wants to watch? In 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That's interesting, right? So when I'm inconsiderate, it could hinder my prayers. That's enough to, uh, to give me, a, okay, you take the remote. <laughs> I don't want my prayers hindered. I want my prayers to be powerful and effective. So just being considerate of other people uh, makes a difference. And I don't think God would put there that in the scriptures if it wasn't true. That it can hinder my prayers just because I'm inconsiderate to my wife. I think it would hinder my prayers if I'm inconsiderate to anybody. The fourth cause of conflict is insensitivity to, other, to others' needs. You know, I'm just insensitive to what their needs are. Sometimes what we do is we just ignore their needs because we're only paying attention to our own. Number five, develop Christ-likeness. Develop Christ-likeness. If I want to reduce conflict in my relationships, I need to become more like Jesus. Look at Philippians 2.5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. I don't remember how many years back it was, but people used to wear those bands, and it was the, what would Jesus do? It was WWJD. And they would wear these as a reminder that when they're in a situation, this is to remind them, what would Jesus do in this situation? You know, would he really be yelling at the waitress? Is that how he would have responded? What would Jesus do? So people are encouraged, wear these bands that say WWJD. So when you're in that situation in life and you start getting off track, you see, oh, what would Jesus do? I'm not acting like Jesus. To, you know, to develop that so you're conscious of what you're doing. Well, this verse is saying the same thing. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. What was his attitude? In Philippians, who being in the very nature, who being who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Here he is. He's God. And yet, he's living as if he could never be God. He's living 100% as a human. People say, is Jesus half God and half man? No. He's 100% God, but he's 100% man. He's 100% God in who he is. He's a, he was 100% man in a physical body. He, he humbled himself and became completely a, a human being. So being Christ-like is to be humble. It's not demanding my own rights. You don't see Jesus demanding his own rights. God defended him. I'd rather have God defending me than myself because who would do a better job? I, I would want to trust God for that. Look at Philippians 2.7 but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He had a serving attitude. A serving attitude. 
Now, a lot of people can serve, okay? I hope we all serve in different ways, right? A lot of people can serve. Doesn't mean you have a serving attitude. How, how do you know that you have a serving ha- attitude? This hurts. It hurts me to hear this. How do you know they have a serving attitude? When pre- people treat you like a servant, how do you respond? If you respond in a negative way, you don't have a servant av- attitude. Because think about it. If people treated me like a servant and I had a servant attitude, I'd be, okay, that's fine. Why? Because I have a servant attitude. I'm telling you, I can serve. I struggle with having a serving attitude. I can serve as long as you don't treat me like a servant. Do you struggle with that too? Or is it just me? I can serve, but don't treat me like a servant. Show me respect. You know what that means? I do not have a servant attitude. That's what it means. I am not being Christ-like. That's what I'm saying. It hurts. It hurts. Because to be like Christ, I can serve others and have a serving attitude when people treat me like a servant, meaning they're treating me like I'm lower than them. I just say, well, that, you know, that's them. That's just who they are. And it doesn't bother you. That's when you have a servant attitude. That's a struggle for me. That's a battle for me. But that's the only way that we can be like Christ. Only way. Being a servant like him. Look at Philippians 2.8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Are you willing to sacrifice for the benefit of other people? I'm willing to sacrifice for the good of others. You know, it's human nature to be selfish. I want to be totally unselfish with my wife, but I'm not. I want to be totally unselfish with my kids, but I'm not. I want to be totally unselfish with you, but I'm not. That's hard. So you know how we say the only way to do certain things is you have to rely on a power greater than yourself? That's why we need God. The only way that I'm successful at being unselfish with my wife, my kids, with you or other people at work, whatever, the only way I'm successful is when I'm relying on a power greater than me, which is Jesus. Because the truth is I really can't do it without God. I want to, but I can't. I'd be lying to you guys if I said that I could do that. I can't. I can do it with God. With Jesus working in me, I can be unselfish. My motives can really be unselfish with my wife, with my kids, with you, with everybody. But it's those times that I get into me and I quit living for God like I should, which can change like that. You can five minutes do something really unselfish and from the right motives, and five minutes later, mess up. How is that? that that's our humanness. But what it means is my only chance is to rely on God. If someone's trying to live this life without relying on Jesus Christ to change them and help them, they're never going to be what they could be. I've got to rely on God. So here's the fifth cause of conflict, living without Christ. Christ, without you, I can't do it. I need a power greater than myself. Unity, by the way, is a gift from the Spirit. Look at Ephesians. It says, do your best to preserve the unity which the Spirit gives. If the Spirit's the one that gives it, that means it's a gift. 
It's a gift from God. Unity is a gift from God, which the Spirit gives by the peace that binds you together. What is this saying? It's saying, I need God. If I want unity, I need God. It's a gift from the Spirit. I, don't, I, I just don't have enough of it within me, which also tells me this. Living this type of life isn't about imitation. It's about habitation. Imitation is me looking at what they're doing, like Jesus, for example, me looking at what Jesus do, is doing, and me trying to follow that example. That's good. That's good, but that's not what this is saying. It's about habitation. It's not about me looking at what he's doing and trying to do it. It's about habitation. It's about God living in me, in me, to give me the power to do the right things. That's why we need Jesus in our life. It's the Holy Spirit, obviously, that comes in. So I want to have the life that God has for me. I desire it. I want us to ask these questions. Do I diffuse competition? Is there competition going on in my marriage, competing over free time and money and goals? The root of most marriage problems is selfishness. How about pride? Do I want my way all the time? Does everything revolve around me? Can I admit it when I'm wrong? Maybe humility says, maybe my mom or dad, maybe I have to admit that they're right and I'm wrong. You know the harder one? Is maybe I have to admit that my teenager is right and I'm wrong. That's harder. But that's humility. Because sometimes they're right. Because we're not perfect. How about criticism? Do you give more strokes or pokes? If we fail to value people, that's going to be conflict. How about consideration? Are you considerate to those closest to you, or do you take them for granted? Do you just assume that they're always going to be there for you? Do you take into consideration the emotional needs of your partner, the emotional needs of your partner, or do you pretend that they don't exist? Sometimes men, we fail at this. We're not wired that way so well. And we have to really be considerate and li listen to their emotional needs. How about this one? Do you take into consideration the sexual needs of your partner? Or do you pretend like they don't exist? Sometimes women struggle with this. They're not naturally wired that way like a guy would be. Sometimes. A lot of times in counseling, I see these type of things where the guy just doesn't seem to have that ability to understand how important her emotional needs are because he's not emotional, so he just thinks that she's being wacky. That's what he thinks. He's that clueless. He just doesn't know. But then I've seen the reverse where the woman doesn't understand how important the sexual needs are to the man, and she's treating him like there's something wrong with him, and she's missing the whole boat. We have these tendencies. If it's not the need I have, I don't show consideration. I only show consideration to what I'm concerned about. The good news is it's possible to live a satisfying life. It's possible to live in harmony. It's possible to have meaningful relationships. It's possible to enjoy the people around you. It is. That's why Paul's writing this. He's saying it's possible to have this but it's impossible without God helping you. That's why I need a Savior, to save me from myself. To save me from myself. I need Jesus to help me.
With this, let's pray. Lord, we want to have unity. Lord, help us to diffuse competition with those on our team, with our family members. Lord, we, de- we want to delete the conceit in our lives. Help us not to be prideful. Help us to decrease the criticism that we have toward others. Help us to build others up, not to tear them down, to value others and to honor them above ourselves. Help me to demonstrate consideration toward others. We want to be sensitive to their needs. Lord, we need you. We can't do it without you in our life. Without your power, we don't have a chance. So, Lord, we submit our lives to you. We're asking you to guide us and change us from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.